Hello and welcome to Tales from the Ruther, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library and being recorded in a socially distanced kind of way on the campus of Wayne State University in the heart of Detroit, Michigan. My name is Dan Galadner and I'm your host along with the effervescent Troy Eller English. What's shaking, Troy? What's going on? Hello. How are uh, you? A, a, a storm is going on. Yes, yes. It's a nice thing now that we are back at, uh, on campus. We get to look out these big, beautiful windows and see horrible rain come through and envision my basement flooding once again, <laughs> which is always just a fun thing. Not sure you don't get any floods, do you? You're up on top of sand. We live on an anthill. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. Did you ever okay. see the movie Them? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just remember that. <laughs> Okay, on today's podcast, we talked to Justin Beale, who wrote the book Sand Future, a literary nonfiction, a hybrid biography about Benuro Yamasaki, who is an American architect best known for designing the World Trade Center and several other large-scale projects, but always on the margins of history. And it's also about Beale's life in New York City, sandwiched between 9-11 and Hurricane Sandy as he figures out this new landscape in New York City, and well, frankly, the world around. Sam Future is about many things, art, architecture, and of course, Yamasaki, the effects of migraines, how our cities were built, but more importantly, the immediate danger of sick building syndrome that is not only in where we live, but in our, in our new houses, but where we work, in our schools, and the effects of, well, largely a sick world. Justin Beale is an artist with extensive ex exhibition history in the U.S. and Europe. He graduated from Yale University in a degree in architecture. His work has been reviewed in the New York Times, The New Yorker, Art Forum, and the Los Angeles Times, and is included in the permanent collections of the Albert Knox Museum, the Hammer Museum, and the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles. Beale teaches at Hunter College. Sand Future is his first book. So why do we talk with Justin Beale? Well, we do have the Yamasaki papers here at the Ruther Library, and Beale spent some time here poring over the collection before COVID really hit. And as we all know, we love to interview researchers who like to pour over our collections at the Ruther. And you know what? This book is, I have to say, one of the best urban history books I've read in a while. Creative, poignant, and intriguing. The book, Sam Future by Justin Beale, came out this month, so pick up your copy wherever you buy books. <laughs> Justin, thank you for joining us on our Tales from the Ruther podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, this is awesome because I really enjoyed reading your book, but I want to ask you a question. You are basically a contemporary artist with numerous years and exhibits under your belt. Where did the idea of writing a book come from? Well, I, I'm going to attempt to answer this question in a way that's not going to bog your listeners down in a lot of art talk, but I, I think the simplest way to answer it is to say that um, a lot of contemporary artists hit a certain point in their early mid-career. It often happens around 35, where um, you know some of the momentum that might have been there early on kind of wanes. And I was very aware of that as a younger artist and very aware of the people who were older than me, generation ahead of me, uh, 
how they struggled with that moment. And the, there were no easy answers, but I think what I did notice, the one takeaway I had from kind of watching other people go through this moment in their life and their career was that the people who kept doing the same thing, kept making the same work, uh, were really struggling uh, because you know some of the energy, initial energy was no longer there. And the people who had taken their practice in a different direction, done something different, changed media or style or, or made some kind of pivot were the ones who seemed to be thriving. So that was always on my mind, though I didn't know exactly what it meant or how it would manifest in my own work. Uh, and it was on my mind when I moved back from Los Angeles to New York in uh, 2012 to be with my wife, who at the time owned an art gallery in Chelsea. And it was very just before this Hurricane Sandy, which then flooded the gallery that she owned, which was in the kind of western edge of Chelsea. And I spent a couple months after that helping her clean up the gallery and you know we my wife and i had met because i was friends with a lot of artists who showed at her gallery which meant that i spent a lot of the, those months pulling work out of the basement by people who were very close to me and work that i knew very well and and it was a very intense physical experience of kind of lifting these dead artworks out of this basement and kind of thinking a lot about what it meant to make things and to make these giant cumbersome objects that just went out into the world and i think that really helped me realize that i wanted to do something that was not sculpture based that was less material and i'd always been uh, i'd always writing has always been part of my practice but i sort of decided then that after i finished the shows i was already committed to i was going to spend some time writing i didn't i didn't know that it was going to end up being a book but i knew that i wanted to spend some time writing to try and move things in a different direction all right. Short, sweet answer right there. I love that. You know? Was that short? No, yeah, yeah. Not long. <laughs> um, no, but it gave a great, it, it, it helps to understand where you were coming from, your, your energy and uh, your creativity was coming from. But you chose a, a unique way of writing this part memoir talking about, you know, the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy on your, uh, with, with your wife's gallery. And you slowly move through your life, right? Right. But you incorporate Yamasaki. And I'm wondering where you got the idea to have this, this book, part biography of Yamasaki, part memoir of yourself. And what, did, what were your views of Yamasaki before you even started this book and after? I'd always been confused by the idea that I didn't, that I didn't know who Yamasaki was, right? And I, my undergraduate degree uh, was in architecture, and I graduated in May of 2001. And, um, shortly thereafter moved to an apartment that was just two blocks south of the World Trade Center in lower Manhattan and immediately became completely obsessed with these two buildings. Uh, and I remember thinking at the time how strange it was that I just finished this, kind of, this you know, very rigorous architecture program. And I was looking up at these two, you know, the two tallest buildings in New York, and I had no idea who designed them. Um, and so that, you know, this was 20 years ago, but I did some kind of research and I started to, to figure out the system of connections. Uh, the first being that, that Yamasaki also designed, uh, the 
Eastern Airlines terminal at Logan Airport in Boston, which was a very important building for me as a child. Because uh, it was this big kind of grand concrete it's no longer there, but there, you know, it really looked different than almost everything else in Boston and it and made a huge impression on me as a child. And then of course, connecting Yamasaki with Prudigo, which is probably the only time that I've been told about him or his work. He was not usually mentioned by name in, in architecture school. And, you know, so I had this kind of interest that developed slowly over decades, but then when I started doing some research for this book, which originally began with research on sick building syndrome, which um, I, I, we'll, we'll likely talk about later, but I just, every time I dig, dug a little deeper in Yamasaki's story, I, I realized what an incredible story it was, uh, both the scope of his work, the breadth of his work, the, the, the story of his own life, that it just seemed weirder and weirder to me that he's not somebody who everyone is more aware of. Um, and that, you know, it, that it was a kind of reoccurring, like every day I dug deeper and deeper, I learned more and more. So it kind of, I was always, you know, I feel like I'm still learning stuff about him, but um, yeah. It, so, so it, it, it's been a process that's gone on for years and years. Right. I think, I think that's actually, not uncommon with a lot of people who not only look at architecture, but also look at the history of our urban, urban world. Yamasaki right. was part of it. I mean, as, as you, you mentioned like uh, the, the Logan airport, his ideas for the St. Louis airport was going to make it the grand central station of airports because before then it was, a, it were usually fields, right? They, were right. Huts. they weren't anything. And I'm still learning about him as well because he um, he keeps getting a nod every once in a while from people just writing about what postmodernism is, mm-hmm. um, and I keep seeing I keep seeing him pop up every once in a while. Where how come Yamasaki was not considered the household name? I mean, here he was one of the leading postmodernists or brutalists or new formalism, if you want to call it. Right? Um, did the did the movement fail around him, or did he fail the movement? Well, I, I don't. I, I I think we should sort of just, just dispense with the kind of labels because I don't. I don't. I, he's not really a postmodernist, no, no, or brutalist, but he's not really a modernist either. But I think that you know the, the heart of your question is just sort of why why is he why is he not more of a household name, and especially given the sort of apex of his career, which I think was, you know, I think could easily be marked by the the time he was on the cover of time magazine in 1963 and every other architect who's ever been on the cover of time magazine they're not many are our household names buckminster fuller frank lord wright saranen um and the reasons for yamasaki's kind of kind of obscurity in are they're very complicated um i think that they have to do with style they have to do with race they have to do with um the spectacular sort of tragic coincidence that that so many of his buildings have been destroyed um and so so it's not something you can kind of just give a one-line answer to but i think that all of those things contribute to it i mean he was pushing 
modernism into a more, I mean, he basically considered himself a modernist, I think, but would, but, uh, but considered modernism to be kind of an incomplete project that it was failing in its ability to uh, really accommodate its human occupants, right? He, he was very much enamored with the structural methodology, the material philosophy of modernism, but he felt as though it was sort of an unfinished product and it needed to, he needed, it needed to return to a kind of humanism. That was a, that was very, um, not so much that idea, but his use of ornament and decoration was um, very kind of unpopular with the architectural orthodoxy at the time. Um, it was also a very difficult time to be a non-white architect, you know, uh, and I think with the potential exception of I.M. Pei, you know, Yama was probably the most significant non-white architect of his generation, if not, if not that American century. So it was decorative, uh, you know, history hasn't been kind to new formalism, but there are ways you know, I, I think it's a combination of all of these things. It has to do with, you know, with the fact that he was practicing in Detroit and not on the coast. It was all sorts of factors kind of conspired to him not fitting into this dominant narrative of American architecture. Uh, does that, no, exactly, does that exactly how yeah. I look at um, exactly how I look at him. The more I read about him, that he was always. You mentioned the race issue with being not the white architect on the coasts. He was something that has always been marginalized his whole life, and then marginalized on his work. He wasn't masculine enough. He was too feminine. He was doing these things, not doing that, um, which, which makes him, I think, one of the most interesting architects and a great thing, thing to talk about. And you mentioned humanism and being humans back into what it is to live in our these buildings and you know all right i have to throw the labor hat in here because we're a labor archives and always have to do that but we know that in our archives the american federation of teachers and AFSME have always talked about sick buildings they, mm -hmm. they constantly talk about improper ventilation hurting children or hurting their their, their, their members um these big industrial prison-like places that they were working and that's still today with the point out with the sick buildings and you're talking in your book, which is just grasped me here, was how you talked about health of our buildings as related to our bodies. So what is that intersection? So our listeners can kind of like hear what you're talking about. Sure. Um, well, I think, I mean, this is a topic that's very interesting to me. And that's actually, it's, it's where my sort of research for this project originated was in this kind of looking more closely at this idea of sick building syndrome. But to just zoom out from that for a moment. You know, I th there's always been a connection between, you know, it, between bodies and buildings within the sort of architectural, you know, you could say that the, that Western architecture, as we know, it began with Vitruvius's 10 books on architecture, which in which he describes how architects should study the body the way medical students do. And, and that, you know, that, and, and, and he, of course, was you know, helped develop the system of proportions that's famously depicted in the Da Vinci drawing of the Vitruvian man, where you're literally using human measurements to determine the proportions of a building. So you're actually kind of mapping a human body onto a building and that, that buildings were 
foremost designed with health in mind. And um, at the risk of generalization, you could sort of make a line, an arc from Vitruvius all the way to uh, Friedrich Jameson, Don DeLillo, people writing about sick building syndrome, this sort of gradual decline of this relationship between bodies and buildings. And that reaches a kind of crisis point um, probably around the late 70s, uh, but and, and, and which is when the term, you know, the term sick building syndrome was first recognized by the World Health Organization in 1984. Um, and, it, and it always had this kind of, it was always regarded by the medical industry and the construction industry as something somewhat hysterical, right? Like it wasn't, you know, people are making this thing up. It's not, it, it's psychosomatic or whatever. But the truth is it wasn't those things at all. It existed for very two very, very concrete reasons, which were first the, um, the materials that we were building with got progressively more and more toxic and they were not regulated. And the sort of from the sort of post-war up until the 70s, there was all these new kinds of material entering the construction industry, plywood made with formaldehyde, you know, um, all kinds of vinyls and adhesives and carpet adhesive, everything like that. And they, they were sort of slowly taking over the construction industry. And then there, there, what, there was this kind of moment, which I'm sure you are very aware of as being a labor historian in Detroit, where the energy crisis arrives in the early 70s and builders and architects become obsessed with saving energy. And so they just tighten up everything. And they, you know, they, everything, they make buildings so that no air can get in and go out. They, uh, at a federal level, ventilation standards are cut to a third of what they used to be to save energy. So then you have this kind of moment when these buildings that are, th these materials that are off-gassing into these buildings can no longer off-gas in the same way. And it's more complex than this. There's other factors involved, of course, that have to do with air conditioning and all that. But basically you get this, convergence of these two things that, are, that creates a very real phenomenon of sick building syndrome, but it's still never, it's still never really escaped from this idea of being something hysterical or something not to be taken seriously. And I always love the idea because just the, just the terminology, just the, the words sick building syndrome are so wonderful because they're um, both an illness and a metaphor for the illness, right? They, they, you can you hear the language and you imagine a building being a sick body, but also a building that is making the bodies in it sick. And you know the the, the term slowly got and got pushed out of of common usage. The ventilation regulations were lifted, uh, you know, were were improved again. We've eliminated a lot of the formaldehyde and plywood, things like that. But it's still very much real. And I still think that there are lots of ways in which we need to think harder about how buildings are unsafe. And that can mean not just your carpet adhesive off-gassing and making, giving you a headache, but also, um, I mean, I think two very good recent examples are the that devastating fire at the Grenfell Tower in London in 2017, which had to do with unregulated siding uh, being improperly used. And, and then of course, the more recent 
uh, tragedy in Surfside in Miami of just this, you know, building the fact that we're, that we've <laughs> built two dozen skyscrapers on Miami beach, which is essentially like building a skyscraper on a coral reef. And, you know, if you, if you have a place like that where salt water is coming up into the rebar and corroding the rebar from the inside, you know, you're not, you're making decisions that are based on economic priorities, not on health and safety priorities. And I think if I'm, I'm going I'm to try to end this land the plane here, but I think one of the silver linings about COVID is that it's heightened people's awareness of ventilation and air circulation in buildings um, and made people more conscious of it, particularly in schools, as you mentioned. So at least there's awareness now that there might not have been um, 20, 30 years ago. I, I really hope there is more talk about fixing the ventilations. Uh, we'll see about that. But you bring up a lot of things, right? My mind is like popping here because you mentioned air conditioning. And mm. I've always thought, when air conditioning has changed us so many ways, and I love how you bring it up and you actually mm. go back and, and, and write about some like famous people within our culture who just despised air conditioning units right. there. I, I'm torn. One, because air conditioning, yes, it has, for me, I've seen it on a cultural level that it stopped us from being together. As soon as we put an air conditioning unit in our house, we weren't out in the streets anymore. We weren't hanging out in New York City on the fire escapes to, to beat the heat and talking to our neighbors. All of a sudden, we started going inside. And then the TV, then the radio, then everything started evolving into where we are inside being cool, not talking to our neighbors. But on the other side, air conditioning opened up the United States. No one would move to Florida or Atlanta or Houston or Phoenix without air conditioning. Right. So there's this game going on. Um, and that's just my rant on air conditioning right there. I mean, you, <laughs> you, can, you can tie in if you want to right there. Yeah, but, for sure. I, I mean, I think there's a, right. Um, you know, there's, this, there's a, this amazing architectural critic and theorist called Keller Easterling, who has written about this idea of uh, something that she calls a multiplier, which is like a piece of software that you can put into an existing system that just radically changes the behavior of the software. And, and as that applies to architecture, you might imagine the mechanical elevator as a multiplier or the air conditioning unit as a multiplier. Once you introduce the, the concept of air conditioning to architecture as like a larger software, all of a sudden you can do things that were never possible. You can expand throughout this country towards the south and to the west and so it yeah it radically changed uh the landscape of the united states but it also is of course incredibly energy intensive um as you say it focuses energy on in, in indoor space as opposed to outdoor communal space um and it also you know it is the source of a, a huge number of kind of ventilation respiratory hazards as well right um so i i think either the extreme cases of henry miller and the air-conditioned nightmare um but i do you know i i do think it's complicated and doesn't is is underappreciated the impact that it's had on how we live not just in the united states globally i, I think is vastly underappreciated Mm -hmm. Yeah, I decided to throw that in there because when I was reading it in, in Sand Future, it was like, 
yes, you're talking about air conditioning. I've always had this. My older brother would love you too because he hates the thing. You know, he just. I mean, I don't. Yeah, like, I think that the the net impact on on how we live has not been a, a positive one. I mean, yes, sure. Now people can live in Arizona, but maybe people aren't really. You know, maybe that's a weird place for humans to live. Well, proof proof is it's like they're doing recounts. You know, that's that's proof right there. That <laughs> <laughs> but you mentioned also um, the inferior construction and how budget cuts can really undermine the architect. And I'm speaking of Pruitt Igo, built as the answers and the prayers of overcrowding, a savior for the people still living in the substandard housing in St. Louis. And Yamasaki comes in with these ideas of creating, I don't know, uh, like new ideas on architecture and how people should live and talk to each other and, and live communally. But what happened with Pruitt? I go, here's what happened. And what, what, and was it the day that modern architecture died according to Charles Jenks? Right. Um, I mean, if we were doing a 12 episode podcast, just on Pruitt, <laughs> I go, I'm not sure we'd have time to answer this question. Well, we can in, just tell people to go watch the documentary in the depth <laughs> that it that it deserves. But I think, you know, I, 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 it's an incredibly complicated set of circumstances, and and one where these massive forces that shaped American culture in the middle of the last century came together to to set Prudigo down the path that it ultimately went down. Right, the, so there was sort of the Great Migration that brought huge population increase to the Midwest. Then there was the uh, Housing Act following World War II that made it very easy, that sort of drew a lot of the white population of St. Louis out into the suburbs, um, made it very difficult for the black population to leave, to, to, to leave into the suburbs. Then the Brown First Board of Education, then you know Nixon, there are all these kind of all these major forces that that conspired to make Prudigo a failure, right? Um, the the model of high-rise housing, flawed as it may be, there are instances where it's worked, but it requires a massive density that and and pop, the population in St. Louis was going way down, and and the, there was never full occupancy at Prudigo, and and the entire model was dependent on full occupancy to pay the rent to cover the the maintenance and so that became an impossible situation but even before that the um the the requirements from the housing act to meet the budget federal budget requirements for public housing were so stringent that it was very difficult to do anything kind of creative and that and that and one of the many ironies of prudigo is that the the one kind of thing that Yamasaki was able to fit in in the interest of creating community within the buildings was these kind of breezeways that on every third floor where where services were consolidated, laundry rooms, elevators, things like playrooms, things like that. And those ultimately became quite dangerous uh, in the decline of the building later. So um, all of these things kind of conspired to make, to send Pruitt Igo down this path. I, th in terms of Yamasaki's role, uh, you know, it's a situation where 
there's no, I, I don't think any architect could have designed that project given the parameters in the brief in a way that would have succeeded. Um, but there's also a great deal to be learned from its failure. Uh, as to the question of Jenks, the reason why that was such a convenient marking point for the end of, of modernism in the United States uh, is because it was photographed, because it was a photograph. And, and it, it allowed, um, you know, we all love being able to kind of pinpoint the moment when something happens. And the, you know, I think Jenks uh, being very attuned to, to sort of how narrative unfolds, recognized that there was these spectacular photographs of the demolition of Prudago. And that, because that photograph existed, it, it became an irresistible marking point for this failure of, of, of the, you know, the modernist project, meaning this idea that modernism could change, fundamentally change like the social fabric of, of the country. And so, and, and, and the, there are certainly other examples. Uh, there, were, there were catastrophic failures of housing projects in New Haven and Chicago and things like this, but I think it really was the photograph that allowed Jenks to kind of pinpoint it. Even though, as I say in the book, he's quite sloppy in his pinpointing. He says, that them, he, he says the photograph is from July, it's in fact from April, he says the building is 14 stories tall, it was 11 stories tall. Mm -hmm. He says it won prizes, it didn't win prizes. But it doesn't matter. None of that matters because he has this spectacular photograph. Right, right. Nothing ever matters until you know, the photograph we always will, will, will witness and identify with. Right. Um, this, this, I'm making a huge jump. Like the World Trade Center that are being built and is up, and you use these pictures. I forget who the photographer of here's people lounging on what is a park sand right. and it's like they're in the beach they're lounging and here is this 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 the sign of capitalism and excessive growth behind them and juxtaposed by these great pictures of these people just sitting there lounging yeah being part of that what what is so powerful about these photographs i mean it i drew to it i honed in on it and it's like this is the one of the most you know impressive photographs i've seen in a long time yeah, it, it is an incredible photograph, and it's the, the uh, it was taken by Fred Conrad, who was a longtime uh, photographer at the New York Times, and it's actually it it, it it was taken at this moment that I think is particularly fascinating in the history of the World Trade Center because you know one of the things the World Trade Center the complexity of the story of the World Trade Center is is also probably deserving of its own twelve episode podcast, but but it took basically 10 years from when the idea was first, the, the job was first given to Yamasaki for the buildings to be finished. And it was a very complicated 20 years in the history of this country, right? It, you know, Vietnam happened uh, and, and um, among many other things. And so when the project was originally unveiled, there was a great deal of optimism around it. By the time that it was finished uh, and it opened, um, just a few months after Pruitt-Igo was the first buildings in Pruitt-Igo were destroyed, I think people had a very different relationship to uh, the military-industrial complex, massive administrative bureaucracy buildings. It became a monument to something quite different, and um, 
that was the moment where the country was really a moment when the country was really sinking into recession. New York was sinking into an extreme recession. And um, the, the buildings just symbolized something that no one, you know, they just seemed bureaucratic excess. And, and they were sort of universally despised at that moment. Now, the beach itself is another thing. The beach was the land that is now Battery Park. And because the city was broke, it didn't have money to develop Battery Park. So they basically just dredged the sand from the lower harbor and covered 92 acres on, on, uh, at the end of Manhattan in this beach, which is what, when that photograph was taken, uh, it was, that photograph was taken at, at the 1977, uh, and the beach was there until the early 80s. But um, what, okay, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. But what I was trying to say is that you have the, it, the beach existed during this moment when when New York was kind of pulling itself out of it, nearly going bankrupt, and uh, it was also this time where the city changed in a very fundamental way. Right, that the, the this idea of New York as the workers' paradise that was sort of developed by Fiorello LaGuardia and Al Smith really change in a fundamental way into a city whose priorities in order to, to, to rise out of bankruptcy were finance, insurance, real estate, and stuff like that. And it was around that moment, that time between 77 and 82, that the World Trade Center somehow managed to kind of abandon their mandate to rent only, to rent only spaces to um, companies organized in world trade, or perhaps just changed their concept of what world trade meant enough to allow finance and accounting and insurance and stuff into it. And so by the end of that five-year run, you know, you're, you're in 1982, uh, bright lights, bright city comes out with the with the world trade center on the cover. And, and by that point, it's means something totally different. It, it's become the symbol of like eighties financial excess in New York. And so there was it really had this shift in personality uh or what it or what it stood for over the over that time period and so that's why i mean in addition to the fact that that photograph that fred conrad took just a, a spectacular image and almost surreal because it feels like that beach and that skyline could not exist in the same universe it also is a kind of time capsule of the specific moment when the identity of the trade center was changing in a really fundamental way Absolutely. I, I can't agree with you because, yeah, here was the 1970s. New York is essentially it's burning. Brooklyn was burning right. downtown. You didn't hang out in downtown, but you had a beach because they couldn't afford to right. do anything. But, um, yeah, you mentioned that this the WTC is kind of like this sign of not only of, of we're looking at it in the 70s as something as excessive and then the 80s, it shifts in with this. Uh, the yuppie idealism of the 80s and the go, go, go. Is this the same reason that you look at 432 as a global capitalist building that's sitting in its heart of New York and Midtown? Because you bring them up, you bring up that building a lot. Right. Um, well, um, that so the building that you're referring to, 432 Park, is a, is a, it was, it was briefly the tallest building in New York City. Uh, it was being built during the time that I was working on the book. So it sort of became almost like a marker of time as I was writing, watching it go up and rise. And um, I mentioned this in the book, but I think it's worth repeating here. 
it occurred to me at one point that you could kind of look at the tallest structure in New York, in Manhattan, as a kind of indicator of where power resided in the culture at the time, uh, going back as far as when it was like a temporary, you know, a sort of seasonal hunting ground for the Lenape and, you know, whatever structure they may have erected at the time, then, then the Dutch come and build a fort, right? So the, it's the, you know, you have this military infrastructure and then shortly thereafter, Trinity Church and Collegiate Church are the two tallest buildings on the island. Um, then you enter the sort of industrial era and the tallest buildings are, are nationally recognized brands, Woolworth, Singer, eventually Chrysler. Uh, and then the Empire State Building, which was built just at the very end, you know, just as the country was sliding into depression, remained the tallest building for almost 40 years. The World Trade Center, when it was finished, signifies to me this sort of uh, kind of collaboration between the private and public sector, right? Sort of, the, it's a Rockefeller Chase project, but it's also a state of New York and New Jersey project. And it's sort of this big kind of mush of, of, of private interests and public interests uh, creating the tallest building in the city. Now, 432, which has now been surpassed by several other extremely tall residential towers in the same sort of part of or near 57th Street in Manhattan, indicates that the, the, the tallest buildings are now being built for private individuals, right? That private wealth is where the, that same degree of power is now consolidated. So I think that metaphor was really important to me um, in terms of situating, you know, the, 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 they're both tall buildings, they're both, you know, have square footprints and are, you know, there's similarities, sort of formal similarities between the World Trade Center and 432, but 432, I think also says something about contemporary New York in the same way that the World Trade Center spoke to kind of the culture and society of New York in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and, you know, through the end of the century. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just wanted our listeners to hear that because when I read it, it made complete sense. And then of course I had to get online and look like, oh yeah, I remember that building being built and there it is, is stuck right there as right. a global, global structure, you know, right. of, of personal, of personal wealth. Um, listen, your book, Sam Future, was, it tells us a lot of things in a beautiful way. I must say it was, it was a pleasure to read and I took a lot out of it, but I want, I want to hear what as you as the writer, what do you wish the reader to take away from reading your book? I don't know that I have a, <clears throat> I don't know that I have one specific answer to that question. I think maybe um, I would hope that, it heightens some awareness in the reader to the built environment around them. Um, you know, I was very conscious in terms of style that a, a lot of the building, a lot of the writing about architecture that I've read in my life, it tends to be quite narrow in its, um, just sort of follows a very specific model and it doesn't really speak to the sort of more emotional kind of conceptual experience of living in a, in a built environment. And I, I'm not trying, I'm not, this was no sort of manifesto on my part, but it was just me trying to express the way that I 
see these see these things and in a way I interpret the complexity of architecture and um, you know people the the reader can take that and do with it what what they want but <laughs> no exactly you know I don't it's it's hard to kind of come up with a, a pithy answer to that one but yeah it's it's more of this is like I wrote it here it is because what I got out of your book was is what you kind of said it it's it's about growing up in our changing world through, I don't know, through the buildings that we interact with every day. Healthy, sick, weather beats up on it. We get sick in the buildings. The buildings get sick themselves. It, it humanizes right. architecture. It humanizes um, these brick and mortars that now we just take for granted, you know, um, and identifies back into not only you bring in literature you bring in essays you bring in great thinkers into it it's like when you mentioned the yellow um what was it the uh, uh yellow wallpaper mm. um i haven't read that in decades sure and sparks that humanist type freudian thing going is like yes now i can get deeper into what you're talking about as this sick buildings and how far back it goes you know so right anyway so yes Take that. that no, that's great. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that you, that you, that it kind of all came together for you like that. It's great to hear. So that's what I'm hoping others do as well. All right. The last question, and this sure. is an easy one because this is our fun one. We always ask our researchers what collections you use at the Ruther Library, but also we like to know where you went elsewhere to do your research because it helps all researchers understanding, okay, I can follow the breadcrumbs here and sure. follow along. So. Um, it's a very interesting question. I'm glad I'm glad you asked. You know, Yamasaki's papers are housed at, at the Ruther Library. So that that's where I began. I was hoping, as I mentioned at the top, to spend more time there. Uh, but COVID made that difficult. Fortunately, uh, my my first my early visits were I spent a lot of time cover getting a lot of material. So I, I had a lot to work with. Um, my approach to research was intentionally different than what a academics or biographers might have been. Uh, I, I was very conscious writing this book that I'm not an academic and I'm not a biographer. And I wanted, rather than ha have allowing that to be a liability, I wanted to kind of use that to my advantage and think about how I could approach research in a way that would be uniquely my own. And so that meant, uh, I was very thorough in my in in my traditional research of kind of reading whatever was available on Yamasaki, which is not much, and speaking to people who were involved in his life. But I also tried to complement that with a lot of time just going and sitting with the buildings that are still with us and walking around and thinking about kind of letting looser connections uh, lead me down unexpected paths. And uh, so and looking at a lot of images. And, and so, so I was trying to be very as thorough as I possibly could, but also to, to approach research in a way that was uniquely my own and, and sort of as somebody who has, uh, you know, I have, I, I've just spent a lot of time looking at and thinking about objects. And so kind of going to see the buildings and thinking about how they all fit together and thinking about what was going on at the same time they were being built. And, just to let these different threads kind of come together. Uh, there, there's really not a lot of information about his personal life. He was quite guarded in that regard. So 
the building projects are very well documented, but they uh, there's not a lot about his personal life. So that, you know, I, I, I had to kind of approach that more intuitively um, and, you know, and just acknowledge the fact that there are a lot of questions that I wasn't able to answer. Um, one other kind of anecdote that I think you, you will appreciate as an archivist is that it was a moment about halfway through this project where I was realizing there was astonishingly little archival information about the World Trade Center, e even though it was took forever and was the countless committees and bureaucracy. And then I discovered that in this, you know, I should have thought of this earlier, but the reason why is because the 75,000 volume Port Authority archive was in the World Trade Center. And, it, and so therefore, almost all of those documents were destroyed, which is, I mean, it's just spectacular. If you think about the information contained in that archive, not only about the World Trade Center, but about so much infrastructure in New York City at a time where there may not have been a lot of other copies of it floating around. So once I realized that, I was like, I, I, it, it occurred to me that there really, any information I could find was good because there wasn't there wasn't really a storehouse where I could go to to get it all. Um, no, that killed me when I read that. It was like, ugh. But you do give us a shout out too when you say that without the archivists and historians jumping on, making sure Yamasaki stuff wasn't shredded. That's very true, and that was a you know, um, that that that's an interesting story. Again, one that I don't know the full complexity of, but it, because it happened sort of well after the the narrative time of my book ends. But yeah, there was a lot of uh, material that was saved at the very end, uh, at the end of the firm, not the end of Yamasaki's life. So in the in the early two thousands, um, which was which is spectacular. And there's more information becoming available too. But um, you know, some architects are meticulous in their archiving, uh, and you know, some are not. Uh, the historian Beatrice Colmina has written about this in a very interesting way about, she used the example of Le Corbusier and uh, Luz and Corbusier saved everything. And, and that's why there's so many PhD theses about him, so many books about him because there's so much material to draw from. Uh, whereas Luz saved almost nothing and, and so much less is written about him. And, you know, one of the, complexities of trying to write about Yamasaki is that there isn't a ton of information, but, um, but a lot of the buildings are still there and there, you, you can learn a lot from the information that is available. Absolutely. And of course, come to the Ruther where a majority of his stuff is. So, absolutely, and it's coming up. Justin, I really appreciate it. I really had a lot of fun talking with you. Thanks Thank so much for being on our podcast. Thank you. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. 
And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Minoro, 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 Minoro. Yes, Minoro. M I N O R U. Minoru. 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 I'm gonna mess it up. Just say a couple of different ways, and I'll patch it in. I'll patch the correct version in. Minoru. 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 Yep. Good enough. M. Yamasaki. M. Yami. Yami. Yama. No, it's Yama. not Yami. Yami. <laughs> That's something Yama. else. Yama. Okay. And we're done. How bad was that? It was terrible. Yeah. No, it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> you never know.